Luke 21, beginning in verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind now not to worry beforehand about how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. Several years ago, I'm talking 10 plus years ago, I was visiting a family of mine, and I'm not going to specify the location of it because they might be tuning in, and I don't want to give them away, but we were visiting them, and my sister probably knows this account, but as we were there, they have a pool at their house, in-ground pool, and they also had a trampoline at their house, so we went outside intending to go to the trampoline, but it was cold because it was late winter, early springtime, and so the pool, some of y'all might know where this is going, the pool was uncovered still. And remember, it was cold and whatnot. So my cousin, whom I thought we get along quite well, we were walking 
along, and just out of, out of the blue, he just pushed me in the, in the pool. And this is, you know, freezing cold water, and it was green. And now, I'm not looking for a pity party, right? It's not a horrific moment in my life, but it, it wasn't a pleasurable occasion either, okay? It would just... Now, if I were to rewind time, back to the future type of scenario, if I could tell myself someone will try to push you in at 2.52 p.m., be on the lookout. I would have prepared accordingly. I would have known at that time, I don't know who it is, where it's going to come from, but I need to take out my phone, my wallet, and my knife. Uh, I don't know where it's going to come from, so I'm not going to have my back turned towards anybody. I'm going to always look at everyone near the pool. And I'm always going to keep a good eight feet from the edge of the pool so I have time to, to stop myself. And then in a more proactive manner, I might try to work out a little more so that nobody could push me in. I'd be strong enough to resist them. Okay? Now, when it comes to the end times, as we see in the text and as we read about 1 Thessalonians 4, we sang about it in the first song today. When it comes to the end times, Jesus doesn't give us specificity in terms of when these things will happen. In contrast to my ideal scenario when I could go back to the precise minute and I could warn myself precisely of the moment it's going to happen. Jesus doesn't give us that precise timetable. We don't know that in 2032, he's going to come back. We don't know the precise timetable of it all. But, as one pastor points out, in this text, Jesus is not aiming for specificity regarding a timetable. Jesus is aiming for certainty. In other words, we don't know exactly when these signs will take place and when the end will precisely come, but we know for certain that these signs will in fact happen and that therefore, no matter how old you are, what millennium you find yourself in, what year you find yourself in, we can all prepare accordingly for the end, for that momentous occasion when all these things will come about. In other words, Jesus speaks about the end so that you and I can stand firm in the present, be prepared in the present. Now, as we read through the text, I hope you had an analytical, observational eye because there were three occasions in which Jesus mentioned the words stand up or stand firm. For example, verse 19. This is a beautiful verse in the scripture. I just, I've read the Gospels numerous times, but I've never remembered this one. But verse 19, stand firm and you will win life. In the face of persecution, opposition, resistance, stand firm and you will win life. Verse 28, we fast forward a little bit. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In other words, when the heavenly bodies are going to be shaken and there's going to be the signs and the sun, moon, and stars, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then verse 36, last admonition or command of Jesus here in this passage, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Pray that you might have the strength to stand before Christ himself. So, I think if you were to summarize all of this, because last week, if you were with us, we did a little introduction in terms of how do we approach the text, how do we interpret it. But if you were to sum up this passage in one sentence, I believe you could make it this. When the world is falling apart, stand firm in Christ and you will win life. 
when the world is falling apart, stand firm in Christ, and you will win life. That's a promise. So, to figure th- walk through the text, we're going to do number one, a run-through of the signs of the end. Number two, we'll look at the reassuring hope of Christ. And then finally, we'll look at our response to the chaos. Firstly, a run-through of the signs. Before we jump into that, I need to restate what I said last week, just to help you all understand how to interpret and look at this passage, which some commentators have said this is the hardest chapter in the Gospels to unpack and to figure out. Jesus is firstly speaking to who? Is he firstly speaking to Brenda Martin? No. Is he firstly speaking to Andrew Showalter? No. He's firstly speaking to the disciples in the first century, people who asked him literal questions about their own context. So Jesus then responds, answering real people in the first century regarding the temple primarily. Because they're wondering, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And Jesus says, here are the signs that the temple is going to be destroyed. Yet, at the same time, it is valid to read this passage and to see these signs as a type of foreshadowing or type of um, rehearsal of what is going to happen for you and I. There are certain patterns that are similar of what happened in the first century that you and I can prepare for and expect at the end of time when Jesus comes back. And this is just the plain reality of the text. For example, look at verse 32. Arguably one of the most divisive verses in this chapter. I'm not going to parse it apart in Greek and all that and get into the weeds here, but the verse says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So, what is Jesus talking about? Because Jesus does, in fact, mention, seems to mention his coming, his return in verse 27, the second coming of Christ. So then Jesus says here, all these things are going to happen before this generation dies or passes away. But, so is Jesus talking about the first century? Is he talking about the disciples and, and therefore did Jesus come back in the first century? Or is he talking about this generation in terms of the world as a whole, like the wicked generation? I think there's elements of both here. Because it's clear that some of these signs did happen, but it's also clear not all of these signs have fully happened yet. Okay, so just keep that in mind as we walk through these signs. We're going to do a quick run-through of them. Uh, I'm not going to unpack all of them in depth, but what are the signs that the temple is going to be destroyed, slash, what are the signs that the end is coming? All right, number one, lies and deception will abound. This is from verses, uh, actually in verse 8. Jesus says, watch out that you are not deceived. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, the time is near. Do not follow them. So Jesus, right there, states that right off the bat, many people will come in the name of Christ, claiming to be the Christ, and will lead many people astray. And we know this did happen in the first century. For example, in Acts chapter 5, verse 36, we hear about a man named Theudas. Okay, Theudas. Now this guy in Acts 5, 36, he is a guy who claimed... This is from Scripture. He claimed to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. 
We don't know that he was necessarily claiming to be Christ, to be Jesus who had come back. But several commentators believe that's what that phrase means. This man claimed to be somebody, a master following to follow him, and then, but it all came to nothing. It was all a lie, a hoax. But in the modern day, I found an article from the New Zealand Herald that was published in 2017. It was about seven different guys in the 2010s who claimed to be the reincarnated Jesus. And these guys, they ranged from Brazil to England, South Africa to Australia. And I I thought it would be interesting, though, to have those seven guys all in a room together and just let them hash it out and just see what comes about from that conversation. And you might sound, oh, please, I've never false. The reality, I was looking up one YouTube documentary thing on one of the guys It was based in Australia. It is quite frightening, frankly. I, I thought there was a joke, like, who on earth would be that gullible to fall off? Be careful lest you fall astray. Okay? Be very, very careful in these scenarios. Because all of these different men, they did have many followers who bought into that lie that they were, in fact, Jesus. So for you and I, when there are lies and deception that abound in this world, stand firm in Christ and you will win life. Stand firm in Christ, the living word, the written word, that you might not be led astray. Second sign, verses 9 to 10, the world will be at war. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. And he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. As one historian noted, war is in fact one of the constants of history. And it has not diminished with civilization and democracy. Because sometimes in our modern day world we think, oh, if people just adopt democracy, they get a little bit more moral and, and decent in terms of the government and the people, a little bit of morality, man, we'll get rid of all the world. Nope. Uh, as they noted, they published a book in the 60s, 1960s. They said, in the last 3,400 years of recorded history, only about 268 have seen no war. And mind you, this is only recorded history. We're not talking about local conflicts and local feuding and, and different things happening. Now, Scripture is clear. Psalm chapter 2, the nations rage. The nations rage. Constantly warring, constantly feuding, constantly uh, in conflict with one another. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Because the reality is, every single government, whether it be the good old USA or whatever country it is, every government is run by broken, sinful people. And the sins that you and I experience on a local microcosmic level in our own family, in our own marriages, when you multiply that influence, that scale, to the size of nations, the destruction and the chaos is much greater in a more tangible way. So church, when the world is at war with itself, stand firm in Christ and you will win life. Number three, the third sign, physical deterioration. Verse 11, There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. 
Keep in mind, remember, Jesus is speaking primarily to the disciples in the first century context. And it is fascinating to note several big things that did happen in the first century. Mount Vesuvius, it erupted, and it, that's when it covered the city of Pompeii in ashes. That happened in the first century. The city of Rome and the region right around Rome, arguably the hub of the modern world at that time, it experienced a massive famine in the first century. But also, you might remember the biblical city of Laodicea, or Laodicea, however you, you pronounce it. A big, massive earthquake hit that city, that region, and it completely destroyed it. Took out all the buildings. This all happened in the first century. But of course, you and I know that earthquakes, famines, pestilences, storms, so on and so forth, they do happen a lot in today's world. Romans 8.22 describes and tells us, the whole creation, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Uh, mothers, you know this, right? Uh, you know firsthand what this verse is alluding to. In labor, you have extreme pain, extreme pain, but you are longing for and looking forward to, in a sense, that joy that's right around the corner, Lord willing. Right? You're looking forward to that deliverance, that new birth that's about to happen. And similarly, this whole world is crying out in agony, in pain. It's not just you personally. It's not just you when you have a bad day and, and you personally want to go to heaven. This whole world is crying out for that. It's an agonizing pain because it's looking forward to the day in which the entire world will experience that new birth, that renewal, that deliverance that Jesus is going to bring about when he comes back. So the whole world is cracking under the weight of the curse. But when that happens, when the world, physical creation is falling apart, stand firm in Christ and you will win life. Okay? Number four, persecution. Look at verse 12 to 19. This one is big here. Before all of this, Jesus says, before all of the earthquakes, before all of the deception, before all of the wars, before all of it, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. When you read the book of Acts, which is Luke part 2, the sequel, uh, we see that this was lived out in reality. This was fulfilled as Peter and Paul and Stephen and many others were imprisoned. They were beaten. They were put to death. And Paul in particular was brought before kings. He was brought before governors, given the opportunity to speak of Christ before them. And anyone who tells you, right, a whole passage, a whole sermon can be preached on this. First Peter. Does anybody know what First Peter is about off the top of your head? If you don't, First Peter is all about persecution. Peter is writing it to Christians who are suffering under the weight of government oppression for believing in Jesus. So 1 Peter is a whole book dedicated to this topic. I can't, can only scratch the surface now. But I simply want to say, if anybody ever tells you that the Christian life is supposed to be easy and carefree, they are straight up lying to you, and they probably want something from you. Okay? This life, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. In the book of 2 Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some people, everybody will. So, persecution is a reality that you and I may not have experienced in depth in America, 
But, and I'm not going to, you know, do the whole fear, fear, fear factor thing, right? But just be prepared. Because what you and I have experienced is an abnormality in the life of a normal Christian. Christians throughout the centuries have experienced persecution. So it's important for you and I to be prepared. So when persecution and betrayal and public pressure to bow the knee rages on, what should you do, church? Say it with me. Stand firm in Christ and you will win life. What must you do when persecution comes? Stand firm in Christ and you will win life. Okay? Number five. Another sign of the end slash the temple being destroyed. Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. Look at verses 20 to 24. This one's kind of obvious. You know, what's a sign that the temple's going to be destroyed? Well, there's going to be armies surrounding. Yeah, but Jesus is preparing them. Not, not, he's, he's stating the obvious so that, guess what? You need to respond accordingly. Because when the armies surround Jerusalem, what are you to do? You are not supposed to hunker down and be safe in the, the walls and the fortress of the city. No, they're called to flee, get out of there. Hightail it out of there. This is similar to what God said to the Israelites when they were captive in Babylon. Because as God was going to destroy that city, that region, he told his people, leave. Get out of here. Because my wrath, and similar, think about it in Nineveh as well. God is going to come down on this city, wipe it out. Let's get out of here. Let's, let's get, same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, hey, I'm going to destroy this city. Get out of here while there's time. Similar type of vibe going on here. God's wrath, God's judgment is going to come upon Jerusalem because, why? Why, why upon the city as a whole? Because of the rejection that they, he will soon experience at the hands of the Jews as a whole. By the hands of the majority of the Jews as a whole. He will soon be rejected. He will soon be crucified as we see verse chapter 22 and following the, when the passion narrative begins. So Jesus is saying, listen to me. Listen to my words, because if you listen to me, you will find deliverance. You will find life. So it's imperative for you and I today. When enemies surround us, you can kind of fill in the blank with whatever you might think of might be your enemy, whether it be Satan, temptation, or different other things, death. When enemies surround you, when it seems overwhelming, when it seems uncertain that there's any way of deliverance, Listen to his word. Because when you listen to Christ, you will find deliverance every single time. Stand firm in Christ and you will win life. The last sign, number six, verses 25 to 28, the heavenly lights will malfunction. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming in the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So, in Scripture, the wrath of God, when it's poured out, when it's unleashed, because currently, for you and I today, God is restraining all of his wrath, because now you and I as Christians, we are protected, right? The, the blood of Christ is covers over us. We are protected. But for the world as a whole, God is withholding his wrath. He is restraining it. He's holding on to it because if he gave us what our sins deserved, we would all be wiped out instantly. So it is an act of mercy that you and I truly are here today. 
and, and that non-Christians are alive today. God is being extremely merciful. But when God, when the time comes for him to unleash the full amount of his wrath upon those who have not trusted in him, it's so massive, it's so cataclysmic that even the heavenly bodies will be affected by it. Right? The sun, the moon, and the stars. In the first century, some context today, when you think about the sun, moon, and stars, particularly the sun, a lot of cultures deified these objects. But there's just a lot of strength, a lot of permanence to them. You think about in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, Ra, the sun god that they worshipped. Right? These are just such permanent, powerful things in the world. And Jesus is saying here, even what you think is most powerful and most permanent, even those things will tremble under the weight of my return. Everything, all of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, every human being is going to bow the knee before me when I come back. So you better be prepared. Listen to how Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 to 11, how it intertwines God's wrath being revealed, but also the heavenly lights malfunctioning. It says, See the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and the constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. So church, for you and I, when the stars do not shine, stand firm in Christ and you will win life. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot that's going to happen. That's a lot of moving parts. A lot of different pain and pressure points that are going to come upon us as people from all different angles, right? It's not just persecution. It's also physical deterioration. It's not just both of those. There's going to be wars and raging all around us. So on and so right? There's just a lot of chaos that's happening here. But in the midst of all of that, I hope, I, I didn't highlight it here, but that's what we're doing here. Number two, looking at the reassuring hope of Jesus. Jesus speaks words of promise, words of hope, words of joy here, even in the midst of all the craziness that's going on. Look at the text with me, if you will. Verse 15. When the disciples, when they are brought before adversaries, when they are brought before the kings, the governors, what does the text say? I will give you words and wisdom that nobody will be able to contradict or resist. In the midst, and Jesus is really echoing, if you recall, Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, as Jesus was getting ready to send out his disciples, he tells them, when you were brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Now, I can't say every single one of us, or any of us really, will be brought before a king or a governor or president to give testimony to confessing Jesus as Lord, right? So there's some context where it's not one-to-one correlation for you and I today, but the point is, when you, are, when you and I are in public pressure to bow the knee, to, re, to relinquish Jesus, to forsake him, when, it, when you and I are questioned, might not be in that 
kind of dramatic way. When you were at Starbucks, you were getting coffee with a friend or somebody, and they are questioning you and antagonizing you. Why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in the Jesus or the Bible or Christianity? Why do you follow all of that? It's all foolish. It's nonsense. You can't trust that. In those moments of greatest pressure, Jesus says, I will give you both the words to say, but also the wisdom and how to say it. And in Luke 12, Jesus talks about how it's the Holy Spirit who's going to give us the words to say, the wisdom to say it. And I don't know about you, some of you might not be public speakers, and that's okay. Everybody has different gifts. But isn't that a wonderful hope, a wonderful promise that in that pickle that you are in, God will come through. And he will give you what you need when you truly need it. That's one promise we see in the text. Verses 16 and 17, right after that. It's another kind of interesting thing. Jesus says, You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Verse 17, everyone will hate you because of me. That doesn't literally mean every single human being in the world, but it means all kinds of people, perhaps even a lot of people, will hate you because of me. But then it's interesting. Look at verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. What on earth? Because Jesus just said, verse 16, your parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, some of them will betray you and some of them will put you to death. But not a head of your hair, or not a hair of your head will perish. So that is good news, especially for Mr. Chris Irwin, right? Not a hair of your head will perish. Now, you might be wondering, what, what does that mean? I don't get that. In the Old Testament, if, if you have some kind of time or a means by which you do it, if you look up in the Old Testament, that phrase comes up quite often. Uh, a hair of your head. And it, it just means every kind of fiber of who you are, right? N- nothing, and as Jesus talked about in a previous place in the gospel, he knows every single hair of your head, right? He cares about every single part of you, not just your soul, not just your eyes. He cares about every part of you to the point of every single hair of your head he cares about. And there, not a hair of your head will perish. This is a promise because as Jesus said before in Luke chapter 12 as well, People, human beings, can kill and murder your physical body. They can dispose of your physical body. Right? That's a reality. But nobody can touch your soul. Nobody can touch your soul. And if you are a Christian today, if you trust Christ, if you've been born again, the reality is not a single thing in the world can touch you, can truly touch you. As I've heard one theologian describe it, Death for you and I, which is daunting, it's big, it's, it is bad, right? It's a result of the fall. But death for a Christian is merely a door or window by which we go into eternity, by which we meet Jesus face to face. So for you and I, when it really comes down to it, when you really soak in this truth, we have nothing to be afraid of because nothing can touch us. Nothing can touch us. Not a hair of your head will perish. Verse 19. I've said it a few times, but it's also a promise right there. Stand firm in Christ. Stand firm and you will win life. 
eternal, abundant, fulfilled, meaningful, joyful, loving life. You will receive that life as you stand firm in Christ. If you stand firm in Christ. And I mentioned this earlier. I I don't remember quite when, but when it comes to obeying God, have you ever wrestled through that? Why should you obey? Why should you obey the scriptures? Somebody take a stab at that. Let me, let me, I'm just curious. Why should you obey the Bible? Open-ended. Somebody want to, who's bold? Who loves the Lord? This one? No, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. No. Why should you obey? Like, think about it. Because God knows what's best. Yep. There's multiple ways to answer that. Because I love the Lord. I want to demonstrate my love for the Lord. Right? So, that God knows best. Yep. There's a lot of different reasons. I think sometimes in Christian circles, when it comes to obedience or standing firm in Christ, uh, living according to his word, when it comes to all that, we typically find the motivation to do that by looking back. Okay? You look back to what God has done for you in Jesus. You look back at all the different things that he's done for others in the past. That is all true. We do look back in gratitude, but we also look ahead to the reward. It's not a selfish, sinful thing to do to work, to obey for the reward. You find that several times throughout Scripture about Old Testament saints and even in the New Testament you see that. How Christians, or God's people, followed him, obeyed him because they looked ahead looked forward to the reward that was awaiting them. So part of the motivation, the strength to obey, stand firm, be obedient, love the Lord, love people, serve people, stand firm in Christ because you will win life one day. Look ahead to the reward and let that motivate you and move you to obedience. And then lastly, kind of last promise I'll highlight. Verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. Of course, that literally means the sky, the the heavens, the earth, the physical world we live in. It will pass away. But you can read all we just read into that verse in terms of the nation's war. They rise, they fall. The creation, the physical creation breaks apart. It's crumbling apart. And our physical bodies, just frankly, all of us, our physical bodies are aging and they will perish one day unless Jesus comes back first. The heavens and earth will pass away, but in the midst of all this change and all of this uh, rotting away that we are experiencing because of the curse, one thing remains. God's Word. God's Word stands firm. It stands true throughout all of time. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. A popular refrain in the Psalms, and in the New Testament as well. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. And as Rita said, God's word is good. He knows what's best for us. It's good, it's beautiful, and the key for you and I is to listen to him. Listen to him. This leads us to our last point. How then do we respond to all this chaos? Or get a little more practical. Right, Jimmy D, I know you've been saying, stand firm in Christ yeah, I got that. I got the world is, you know, in flames. I got it's breaking apart. I know we're called to stand firm in Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that look like? Here's three things I'll highlight from the text. Hopefully practical things that you can 
chew on and practice. But number one, how do you stand firm in Christ? Number one, be on guard. Be on guard. And by that I mean watch out. Be on guard against, be watchful against false teaching and temptation. Because there is an abundance of that today. Now false teaching, right, there are kind of obvious ways, like I think of cults, Mormonism, uh, so on and so forth, Christian Scientology, that kind of thing. There are overt false teachings, but the reality is there's so much false teaching in the culture. Just false doctrine, false truths, where if you follow this, if you believe this, this is the way to life. This is the way to joy. Whether it be drugs, or alcohol, or pornography, you fill in the blank. Right? Follow this, follow me, you'll find true life. But also temptation. Be on guard against it. Because in context, when you read the text here, Jesus says, uh, this is from verse 8, watch out that you are not deceived. Right? So this is a command to them. Watch out, be on guard that you are not deceived. And then verse 8, right after that, he says, don't follow them. And he's specifically talking about individuals who are going to come around and claim to be Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, you might say, I would never be that gullible, and I would never fall for one of those hacks that claim to be Jesus. I would hope that's the case. I would hope none of you would ever fall for something like that. But you and I face so many things in life that clamor for our allegiance and our affection. Whether it be work, whether it be career, whether it be kids, whether it be grandkids, whether it be your spouse, whether it be trying to find a spouse, whether it be hobbies or vacationing, or any of these types of things, the temptation is to bow the knee and to follow these things. Now, I hope you heard me right. None of those things I mentioned are inherently sinful. Right? These are good gifts from God. But as Tim Keller says, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. And that is what God, or that, that is what Satan wants to do all the time. Let me say that again. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. That is Satan's goal. Everything good that you enjoy, he wants to pervert it, he wants to twist it, he wants to corrupt it and corrode it so that you end up slandering God in the process and hurting others. So it's so important to be on guard against these temptations that vie for our hearts and to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Be on guard. And the way, as James, the book of James talks about, the way you say no to temptation, the way you resist all of these sinful influences is by staying in God's Word. Being washed in it, being refreshed in it, and, and to put it practically, keep your nose in this book and keep your feet with God's people. Okay, that is how you fight. That is how you are on guard because if you are a lone ranger, I don't need the church, I don't need to be in the church, I can figure this Christian life out on my own, that is particularly who Satan goes after. Because very rarely, very rarely, will you ever find somebody who is actively growing in Christ who is not involved in a local church. Is it possible? Okay, sure. Is that what God called us to? No. We need to be in community with one another. And we need to be in the Word together. So be on guard. Be on the lookout. But this, number two, stand up, look up to Christ. Okay? Stand up, look up to Christ. The Christian life, it is described as war. 
It's described as war. Right? The, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, right? the, the armor of God. You might have learned it in VBS. The Christian life is war. And when you think of war, do you think of people sleeping? When you think of an act of war, do you think of people sleeping? No. Do you think of people even sitting? No. When you, at least when I think of war, just frankly, I think of people standing, on the move, on the go, active and alert. And that is same for you and I when it comes to the Christian life. We are called to stand up, be alert, be on guard, be active, be proactive. But as Colossians 3, 1-2 tells us, keep your eyes on Christ. It says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So, and, and hear me out here. It's possible to read the Bible, but miss the point. Have you ever met somebody like that? I've talked to several people, but they say, oh, I've read the Bible five, six times. And they're just not, a, they, they're either not a Christian or they still slander it, right? You can read the book and still not be transformed by it. So what's the key to all that then? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Because so many people read this book and miss the central character, who is Jesus Christ. In one of our uh, kids' books that we have at home, it's called the ABC Storybook Bible. And every now and again, when there's a jewel there, I cling on to it because when I think of kids' books, I usually don't think of good theology. It's kind of just all up here. Like, for example, the Noah's Ark. Uh, When you think of Noah's Ark, when it comes to a kid's book, you see a little boat that's about that big that can fit in a bathtub. It's like, what on earth? That was not at all what the boat was like. It was a huge, massive ship. But regardless, when I come across something good, I cling on to it. So, the ABC Storybook Bible. It talks, it's um, ABCs, right? So, in, for example, A is for Adam. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. B is for beautiful, because everything was beautiful when God first made it. C is for the curse, because Adam and Eve sinned. There was a curse that came upon the whole world. D is for deliverer, because God promised to send a deliverer. Okay, so it goes through the history of the Bible. When it comes to uh, X, I was wondering, how are they going to pull this one off? Where's the X in the Bible? But they said, lowercase e, capitalized X, right? Example, right? So Jesus is our example in life. A lot of people view him that way, right? He's a good moral guy. We need to live and follow him, follow his teaching, his principles. I got that. But the, the why is where it was gold. Because yes, Jesus is our example, moral example. But yet, why is for yes, because God, or because Jesus is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. Jesus is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. As we'll see in Luke 24, everything in the Bible speaks about him. It points to him, it reorients our minds to look to him. So when you stand firm, to stand firm, you must look up to Jesus constantly. And that is why we gather here week after week. We do it to look up to Christ to know his word, to show his love, grow his kingdom, all for the glory of Christ. Don't ever lose sight of Jesus, the central focus of Scripture and of Christianity. Very last thing, and I'm done. How do you stand firm in the midst of all the chaos? Verse 36. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Verse 36. How do you stand firm practically? Pray. Pray 
One more time. Pray. Pray. Pray for strength to live through the hardship. Pray for the love and the joy that you need to serve those who are unlovable. Pray for the hope of God, the promises of God to sustain you, whether you are persecuted, whether you face sickness, whether you face rejection, whether you, whatever you might be facing in life. Pray for the promises of God to strengthen you and to move you forward, to carry you on one day at a time. All of this comes by being on our knees in prayer. Pray for the strength to stand firm. Because on your own, you're going to fail. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. But in Christ, through Christ, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can live a godly life because of Christ who lives in me. But we must pray. We must pray. So church, when the world is falling apart, stand firm in Christ and you will win life. Let's pray and then we'll close with the doxology. Our Father, may your kingdom come. Jesus, may we rejoice in your love. Holy Spirit, may we stand upon the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.